Good morning, and welcome to episode 188 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus. Uh, I am Ben Lindbergh, joined as always by Sam Miller, and we are here to answer your email questions today. We got some good email questions that we are going to answer. You just said that. Yeah, I did. Uh, okay. Do you want to start in any particular place? Nope. Start where you want to start. Okay. Uh, then I'll start, I guess, with the, the Yankees question. Uh, this is from Steve. Steve says, I'm a Red Sox fan, expat, living in Brooklyn. Right now, the Yankees seem to be holding their own and then some despite an array of injuries that one would expect to be crippling. I can't remember a season when the New York Yankees did not outperform their Pocota expected win total. Where do the Yankees rank in terms of realized versus Pocota expected wins since the inception of Pocota? If they have been a consistent outperformer, do you think it is luck or something else? If you conclude that Pocota does have an anti-Yankee bias, would it be appropriate to build some kind of aura and mystique uh, factor into the projection system, or is that idea fundamentally un Pocota? So I checked, because uh, I, I compiled a list of preseason Pocotas when I was working on something else not too long ago, and it looks like... Uh, if you throw out the first couple of years, because for the first couple of years, like 2003 and 2004, when Nate did uh, projected standings, they were kind of crazy. I don't think they had a, a strength of schedule adjustment. So a team like the Yankees that was in a good division just was projected to win a ton of games because uh, it wasn't accounting for the, the competition. So... If you throw out those first couple of years when they were projected to win like 109 games and 106 games, uh, since then, so from 2005 to 2012, they have been projected to win 756 games and they have actually won 765 games. So uh, that is nine extra wins, which is, I mean, nine extra wins in eight years. So... A little over one win a year. Uh, so I don't know where that ranks in terms of, of how Pocota has over-projected certain teams, but I would guess that it is not as much as, as Steve would have would have guessed. Uh, the last time that they, that they didn't, or that they, uh, let's see, when was the last time that they did not outperform their Pocota expected win total? Uh, I guess it would have been, it's been a while, uh, 2005, they were even 2006, they outperformed by three wins, 2007, one win, I guess 2008 is the year when they missed the playoffs and they were projected to win 97 games and they won 89. So that is when, uh, so as, as Sam pointed out, I think when I sent in this email from Steve, uh, you would sort of expect a competitive team or at least the Yankees to outperform Dakota slightly because they would have a tendency to be buyers at the deadline. So maybe that is your extra win or win in a fraction per season right there. And I guess you theoretically could account for that. And you could, one thing that, that Dakota doesn't do and that I guess no projection system does really is, is to make some adjustment for, tendencies with rosters and just I guess I don't know something like the Orioles last season just making a ton of moves that seems to be something that they just do uh, 
but the projection system doesn't account for that and doesn't, as far as I know, account for a competitive team being a buyer at the deadline. Um, yeah, the the Orioles example you gave is a little bit probably too specific to ever actually expect yeah. any system to right. to to go for. I mean, at a certain point, I mean, at a certain point, you it, you have to just expect the the you know the fan, the buyer, to kind of make his own adjustments as he sees fit and to be reasonably well informed on these sorts of things. Um, but the the idea that a team that projects to win, say, eighty four to ninety plus games is likely to be adding and a team that is projected to be you know to win 74 or fewer is likely to be subtracting seems consistent enough i mean if you're if it, the problem is that you don't i mean you you project a team to win 84 but you don't actually know what they're going to win mm-hmm. but i mean it seems reliable enough that is a league-wide tendency that has persisted for many 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 years um you and i of course don't uh, have any say in Pakoda, but if you were running Pakoda, would you, um, would you give a like sort of a one game bonus to to all teams projected to win more than eighty five and a one one game demerit to all projected below seventy five or something like that? Sounds reasonable. I'm trying to think of some way to empirically verify. I guess part of the question too is what what exactly is the question that Pakoda is trying to answer? If it's mm-hmm. trying to answer the question of how many wins the team is going to win this year, which is sort of what it is on the surface, um, then yes, you might do that because that might make it more accurate. If it's trying to give you a accurate reading of how talented the team is as currently constructed, which is sort of the philosophical and fundamental question that underlies it, then you wouldn't you wouldn't you know get too imaginative about what sorts of hypothetical uh, changes to that team might happen because those changes haven't happened and once they do then you adjust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I don't know. So I don't know. I don't know what the question that Pagoda is trying to answer is. To be honest, I don't know that I've ever sat down and thought about it. Yeah, I guess most people would. I don't know. I mean, at the end of the year when it is judged and people look back at how it did they don't sort of add up how it projected the people who were on the opening day roster or on the roster when Pakoda's last preseason projection was they look at how many wins the team won or games they won so mm-hmm. I guess retroactively at least it is it's judged as as if it were trying to just predict how many games the team will win I guess that's how most people use it yeah so that's that seems right. So yeah, I don't know. I guess uh, I will. Maybe I'll I'll suggest it or I'll bring it up. It's a good idea. I mean, are you gonna are you gonna mention whose idea it was? Uh, I did. I mean, when you bring it up or suggest it. Oh, sure. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Uh, all right. Uh, read the Coco Crisp one. Uh, okay, where's the Coco Chris one? Uh, it's, uh, I think it's Podcast Chris. Oh, yeah, here it is. Okay, Brad. Um, hello, Ben and Sam. Alphabetical. Nothing to read into. I'm a big fan of the show, and I really appreciate the daily podcast. I listen on my way to work, and it makes the seemingly endless snow-filled commutes a little more bearable. My question is, what if Coco Crisp just won the MVP award this season? I mean, what if he just kept playing well, hitting for power, helping his team win, and then he just ended the season with great stats for a great team, and he won the MVP? How crazy would that be? 
How odd would it be to watch Coco Crisp accept an MVP award? Is Coco Crisp the most unlikely of all MVP candidates? I know that in reality, a guy like Drew Butera is the most unlikely of all MVP candidates. I get that. However, if I had you list your choices for AL MVP at the beginning of the season, basically until you run out of players uh, you would actually consider, Coco Crisp would eventually be on the list, but he would be one of the last guys before you give up and stop making the list. He might even be the last guy. He's probably a better candidate than guys on his team, but still, he's Coco Crisp. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably you know, all I have to read of this. It's funny because a couple of years ago, um, I was when I was at the register, I did a post about Vegas odds on MVP voting on you know who was going to win MVP, and Coco Crisp was actually listed, and he was the guy who I mockingly included as the like the bottom of the MVP. Uh, contender list I think he was like 125 to 1 or something like that to win the MVP award and um, I like this question a lot Um, that you know Vegas when they do these sorts of prop bets um, there's always one of the options is the field and so like they, they list 50 guys and then the field is everybody who's not listed and I remember uh, one time a friend of mine uh, at work brought back like the, the the sheet that showed all the prop bets and it was for who was going to lead the majors in home runs and I was this is probably like 2005 and I was trying to imagine who from the field could do it and I believe if I'm not mistaken I believe that somebody from the field had won it the previous year um, and so the question is sort of I, I guess Brad's question is sort of who from the field could do it is Coco Crisp you know, from the field, I imagine that Coco Crisp was not listed this year. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that for instance, um, last year, I, I don't know that Chase Headley would have been seen as any more likely to win. He probably, in fact, he almost certainly would have been seen going into the season as, as I would think less likely to win than Coco Crisp is now or, or is before the season. Headley was 28. He was coming off a, a four home run season. He has never he had never driven in more than sixty four in a season or, or hit more than twelve home runs. And yet if the Padres had sort of fluked into a division, which they, they could have done if, you know, the pitching had come together and they'd had an Orioles like run in extra innings, he would have won it, um, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's not that the unlikely is actually not all that unlikely as a group. I mean, each individual is extremely unlikely, but as a group, it's not all that unlikely. So I was just glancing at MVPs from years past, and you actually have to go back quite a way to find, I would say, a real out-of-nowhere MVP. And by out-of-nowhere, I would sort of define it as not a guy who had received MVP votes uh, previously um, and not a young guy, like, Mm -hmm. like, you know, Trout, if he had won it last year, obviously hadn't won MVP votes before, but he was 20. Um, So you could maybe, maybe make a case that Justin Morneau fits uh, because he had never won MVP votes. He had never been an all-star, and he was coming off a season in which he had a 741 OPS. But Morneau was also, you know, an elite prospect just like two years earlier. Uh, So it really wasn't that out of nowhere at all so I, I wouldn't count him so if you don't count him you have to really go all the way back to 96 with Ken Caminiti mm-hmm. who was 33 had never received an MVP vote had only been an all-star one time um, but 
Also, you probably would have considered him more likely than, than Coco Crisp. He had hit 26 homers, driven in 94 the year before, had a 900 OPS, and, you know, was a, a leader kind of guy. So, Caminiti probably doesn't quite um, reach Coco status. Um, and then you could go to Terry Pendleton in 91, mm-hmm. who um, had received MVP votes one time five years earlier. He finished 18th. He had never been an all-star. In fact, he wasn't even an all-star the year that he won the MVP award. Right. And he's a great example of how a guy like Coco Crisp can be an MVP because he was so narrative and so clubhouse guy. Uh, his numbers were not nearly those of, of, of Barry Bonds that year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet he won it, and then he finished second the next year. Um, and he was 30. So he's a good example, I think, of Coco Crisp-like ability. And, and in, in 89, Kevin Mitchell won it at the age of 27, had never received a vote, had never been an all-star before, was coming off a year with... Yeah, I mean, he was a good hitter. He 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 couldn't, you know. He, I don't even know who it would. I think Kevin Mitchell winning it would be like Ryan Ludwig winning it, probably, mm-hmm. um, which almost happened once. Um, so, not super unlikely, but very unlikely. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Crisp is a good example of a guy who has absolutely no shot. You would you would you would easily name I think a hundred people before maybe before you got to Crisp, or you would quit naming people I guess before you got to Crisp. Uh, and yet you could sort of imagine, sort of imagine a scenario where uh, he has like a 435 on base percentage, scores 135 runs, does, you know, has a sort of like Tony Phillips kind of year and um, steals a ton of bases and just becomes the known leader on a team that, that cruises. I think it would have been easier for him to do it last year because the A's aren't quite sneaking up on people this year yeah i, um, I still can't I, imagine it you still uh, well i, I can't mean, obviously really imagine him playing a full season even just like a pretty good season it's kind of hard to imagine him playing 150 games because he's never done that i don't think um so there's that uh-huh. and yeah i don't know it I don't know that it seems any more plausible to me today than it would have a few weeks ago. Oh, it doesn't seem any more plausible to me today than it would have a few weeks ago. It's yeah. just that, like, I can see a non-zero likelihood of it uh, in in there. Uh, it's it's not a good chance, but you know, I can sort of accept it. I mean, uh, you know, the guys guys hit three. Some somebody hits three fifty for three hundred plate appearances for no good reason. Uh, you know, at any given time. And if, if that were Coco Crisp and, you know, it could happen. Tory Hunter, by the way, is hitting like 360 over his last right. 500 plate appearances right now. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Yeah. Uh, so is there any, does anybody jump out at you as a Coco Crisp alternative though? No. Uh, I meant to do a post at some point about what Pakoda percentile the typical MVP winner is. Maybe I still will do that because I kind of wonder. Because I mean, every every MVP winner is better than than he would have been projected to be that season. Really, there's no there's no one who is. I I would I guess I'd be surprised if there were an MVP winner who who Pakota projected or or would have projected retroactively uh, to be that good. Do you think that that has happened, 
Or is it, I mean, every MVP like is has anybody ever... is exceeding his projection to some extent, I would think. Uh, yeah, I think you'd have to go back to the to the crazy days of Pakoda where, uh, like, we, like, I remember looking recently at a story that ran in 2002, 2003 maybe, and Jason Giambi was projected to be 12.5 wins. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you have to go back to those days. Yeah. To, I mean, otherwise, it's not that, like, like even uh, like Albert Pujols when he was winning him, I mean, it, he was still outperforming his 50th percentile mm-hmm. to some degree just because it's such a conservative kind of approach. And uh, I would, I mean, you if you found one, it would be one of those sort of terrible years of Pakoda where like like Ryan Howard I could see have having won it mm-hmm. with a, a sub 50th percentile. Yeah. Coco Chris 90th percentile this season was 288, 351, 431 with 12 homers, 53 steals. So uh, even that would get him nowhere, nowhere near surprise MVP level. So he would have to be much, much better than that. All right, I'm going to name some names and you tell me whether you think they're Better or worse contenders for this this award for this this Coco Crisp kind of category. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, Jed Lowry. Uh, I guess better just because more power and we've never really seen him stay healthy, but he's had some very good or at least one very good partial season where he. I don't know. I I guess I'd say better. Howie Kendrick. Probably better because he's always been someone that people thought would hit for a really high average and he could have some crazy Babbitt year where he hit 350 or something and won a batting title and the Angels were good and maybe that would do it. Uh, Dion Viciedo. <laughs> um, I guess where he is on the aging curve, he would be more likely just because it would be so strange if Crisp, who's what, 10 years older than Viciedo, suddenly became an MVP. So I guess he is at an age at which it would be less surprising if he took a massive step forward suddenly. So I guess I would still say Crisp. Less Uh, surprising. Alexi Ramirez. Mm, I think that would probably be more surprising. And uh, I'm trying to find one last one for you. Yunel Escobar. (laughs) <laughs> um great clubhouse guy <laughs> um yeah i guess in the wake of last season and his his general reputation uh maybe i could i could see him being a better player than coco chris but can't see him being mvp material okay wait one more nolan Reimold. <laughs> um i like nolan Reimold, but Yes, I'd say Crisp would be more likely. Okie doke. Yeah. Great question, Brad. Great, yeah. great, great question. Mm-hmm. You guys aren't bringing it like Brad is bringing it. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Uh, do you want to do your earned run ratio one? Yeah, just quickly, um, I just want to um, give a nod to this. Uh, Steven says... Um, uh, in regards to kind of ERA and sort of basic run 
uh, stat. Considering pitchers do not average nine innings per start, I've been thinking it might make more sense to use an earn run ratio rather than ERA. If we use a ratio of average innings per start colon to uh, average earn runs using the formula, gives the formula which is going to be hard to say and have you understand it, but it's simple enough. Innings pitched divided by game started to earn runs divided by game started. Um, looking at one ratio would provide a frame of reference for what the pitcher usually does in one game. For example, in Cliff Lee had an, uh, in 2012, Cliff Lee had an ERA of 3.16, which we intuitively know is good, but his earned run ratio was 7.03 to 2.85, which is to say he went an average of 7.03 innings per game and allowed 2.85 runs per game. So his average line, basically pitching line, would have been 7 0.03 and 2.85, which gives us a clear indication of his average performance on a game-by-game game basis. So um, this is interesting because I think that he, I, I think that ERAs, uh, I mean, when ERA was kind of invented and became popular, pitchers were pitching the full game, and mm-hmm. so it essentially was a way of saying how many runs do you give up every game, and the the way that it's used now is a little bit more complex and a little bit more intuitive, uh, sorry, unintuitive. And it only makes sense to people because they grew up on it and know it. And so they know which numbers are good. Um, but it's not all that intuitive, especially, uh, because it doesn't really tell you what happened, even though it does explicitly tell you what happened. Um, the problem is that Ratios are hard to say. They're hard to write around. Um, and uh, this is like you just heard me trying to explain it in a lot of words. It's not something that can be sort of stated real quickly. Neither can ERA, of course, if you actually try to explain it real quickly. But uh, like I said, since we all know it, it's pretty easy. It's ingrained. Um, but I I think that it's the idea that... Um, Phrasing it almost like his line looks, seven innings on average, three runs on average, it gives you a really good sense of what the pitcher does. Um, And uh, I don't think enough probably is made of how many innings per per start each pitcher goes. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's probably an underreported statistic among kind of mainstream places. It seems like if you were doing a broadcast and you were showing the basic statistics of a pitcher, even if you didn't want to get into advanced stuff, innings per start is very simple, very basic, and very important. Um, more important than showing a lot of the stats that they show. Um, so I do like the idea. I do think that if it could be cleaned up and made simple, it would be great, and it wouldn't bother me at all if it caught on and ERA was replaced completely. Yeah, it'd be nice if the earned run could be cleaned up and made simple and and replaced completely, maybe. True, yes, true. So if we are going to get rid of ERA, maybe we should just do away with the whole earned run. But yes, I I like the idea. Makes sense. I like the idea, too. Uh, Okay, this maybe will be a quick one from Daryl. I'm playing score sheet for the first time, and part of the fun is weekly determining batting order for my team. I initially used baseball prospectus's projections and the rule of thumb from the book to determine my lineup, which led to my batting Nolan Reimold first against left-handed pitchers, even though the Orioles had him ninth. But now that I have some 2013 data, I'm tempted to base it on that, even though it's certainly a small sample. Do you recommend I continue to use the projected stats and risk putting slumping players at the top of the order and not riding streaks, 
or should I use what little 2013 data I have and risk missing out on slumping players regressing positively to the mean? Uh, so I would say that the answer is if you are choosing between the preseason projections and the three weeks or so of, of 2013 data that we have, then you should use the preseason projections. Uh, I think I think if it's a binary choice like that, right. either or, I think that it actually makes sense to use the preseason projections all the way into the end of the year. If mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken, I, I remember yeah. seeing Nate say sometime way back when that uh, the projections remain more predictive of a player's true ability, even after a full season, mm-hmm. than that season does. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, I've always I've always gone by that as a rule of thumb. Of course, it's about balancing such things. So the good news is that hopefully you will not have to make that binary choice. I think the the plan is for in-season Pakotas to be rolled out early next week, maybe by Monday or something like that. The last I heard from from Colin Wires, the the keeper of Pakota. So uh, so you will not have to choose between preseason and 2013. You can get preseason plus 2013. Uh, so that will be on the, the player cards, I believe, at some point next week, updated every day. And yeah, you you see that, I mean, when you start looking at those, there's not a huge swing, even if you look at whoever the, the hottest hitter will have been the first day that we have in-season Pakotas, uh, his projection will not be dramatically different from what it was before the season. It just takes a while. So don't give in, I guess. Stick with the, the stats that got you here. That's great, Ben. Yeah. All right. Any others you want to get to, or are we done? Uh, that's all. That's all for me. Okay. Uh, we will be back with two new topics tomorrow, and you can start emailing us for next week at any time, actually. We just received an email as we were talking, uh, and maybe we'll use it next week. So... Podcast at baseballperspectus.com is the address. We will be back tomorrow.